Well, take your Bible this morning. I want you to open it to John, John chapter 6. If you're visiting with us, we are expositing through the gospel of John, and we come to John chapter 6. It would be without um, any kind of reservation to say that this is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It's one of the greatest chapters, certainly, in the New Testament. It's one of the greatest chapters in the teaching and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a long chapter. It really functions around the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe an account that you're familiar with, and, uh, and we'll talk through that both this week, the week to come. Let me read the text as we just begin our time in the worship of the Word of God. And I won't read the entire chapter, but maybe those opening 15 verses. It says there, you follow along. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where we to buy bread so that these people may eat. And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, and what are the, but what are these for, or what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and then he had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who whom had eaten, who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It is a wonderful, wonderful account of the feeding of 5,000. I might even just ask you at the beginning, what is the point of the feeding of the 5,000. I suppose if you grew up in Sunday school at some point, it seems to be that the large message that comes out that it's the boy who shared his lunch. And, uh, and that seems to take a, a greater thought than what is contained in here as to why John placed it here. It is a wonderful, wonderful account. Now, let me just say that we call it the, the feeding of the 5,000. It is, but you can see from the text, it was the feeding of 5,000 men. It would be very fair to say this is the feeding of 20,000. It could even be that it is the feeding of 25,000. But very well, he lists there the men, and we obviously, in the other passage in the Gospel of Mark, it says there were women and children. So this is the feeding of 20,000, maybe up to 25,000. What's really fascinating, beloved, about this account and this miracle is, did you know this, that it is the only account that is in all four Gospels? It is the only miracle account that is in all four Gospels, which is interesting. 
That's the only one. Now, I might say, obviously, the resurrection is in all four accounts, but this is the only miracle account that you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, they all wrote to their own purposes. They all exalt God. They all have their angle on it, on what they're demonstrating. But this miracle, out of all the miracles, is the only one that we find. This is a significant miracle. And maybe I say significant because it is the biggest miracle in the New Testament in terms of numbers, obviously. And so it's significant, but it's also intimate. And the reason I say that it's intimate is last chapter he healed the invalid at the pool for 38 years. But this one's intimate because everybody at this crowd participated. They all ate and they were all satisfied. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is a wonderful lesson here. Uh, Primarily, the text is going to drive us on the identity of Jesus Christ. Once again, John is driving towards that. He's revealing who Christ is. And up to this point, we've seen that he is God in human flesh. Over and over throughout these opening five chapters, John has gone to some length to demonstrate that. That Jesus himself said he's equal in essence with the Father. He's equal in action with the Father. He's equal in power. He's equal in honor with the Father. He's displaying that Christ is God. However, in the feeding of the 5,000, there is a wonderful lesson for you this morning that you would trust him in the midst of your crisis in the midst of your deficiency. And so ever as John unpacks and unfolds this gospel, he on the one hand reveals Christ, but he's ever and always here, and I'll show you, teaching his disciples, which means that he's teaching us. He's teaching you this morning. So we're going to walk through the account, and we're going to see his identity revealed. But in the midst of that, he's going to, point something out that we need to hear as his disciples. Now, as you know, we're coming off chapter 5, the healing of the invalid at the pool. And I mentioned in those weeks that it led to one of the greatest discourses in all of the New Testament on his identity. And we looked at that, and we looked at those bold declarations that I've just mentioned. Then at the backside of chapter 5, we looked at the four witnesses We looked at, number one, the witness of the Father. We looked, secondly, at the witness of John the Baptist. We looked, thirdly, in chapter 5, at the works that Jesus did. And so we took a look at those witnesses, and then we finished on the witness of Scripture. But sadly, as we work our way through the text, the Jewish leaders missed his identity. In fact... It says there in verse 46 of chapter 5, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my works? And remember back in 539 that they were searching the scriptures. And Jesus said, it is those who bear witness about me. And the Jewish people missed his identity. But what else is true is the disciples also miss his identity. You might say to me this morning, he is God. 
But in the midst of your life, in the midst of your work, in the midst of your family, in the midst of your difficulties and maybe even deficiencies, it reveals really your faith and my faith. And so he's ever teaching us, and these disciples' view of Christ was hazy, if you will, at best. In fact, it's going to be displayed in the life in this account of Philip and Andrew. So Jesus is ever not only evangelizing, but he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching us to trust him and to believe in him to meet all of our needs. John Piper said it this way. He said, God's design, and and this is to you, okay? His design in all of our trouble is that we might let go of self-confidence. Well said. He said, when we do that, there is a temporary sense of falling, but by faith in God's mercy, we land infinitely more secure in the arms of the Father who is utterly in control at the brink of life and death. End of quote. I like that line. His design in all our trouble is that we might let go of self-confidence. I guarantee that you've walked into this building needing to be reminded of the power of Christ personally or corporately or financially. And all that he's doing in your life is to teaching you, teaching me that you and I would let go of self-confidence. Now, as we approach the text both this week And next week, I want us to look at a few principles that reveal, here's John's purpose, the identity of Christ that we might believe in him and that we might trust him in the midst of our crisis. That's what the point is. It's not really about the boy who shared his lunch, okay? It's it's about revealing the identity of Christ that you might believe him and trust him in the midst of your crisis or trial or deficiency. We're going to look at the inadequacy of our own resources in 1 through 7 this morning. Then we're going to look at the second principle, the abundance of our Savior, and then the third principle, the misguided crowd. And I think we're just going to get to that first principle this morning, those opening seven verses, because it's rich. And I don't want to bypass it. All week I was thinking, Lord, let me just give them the, the feeding of the 5,000 in one account. And there's beauty to that, and there's certainly freedom to that. But I just thought there's, there's a few things in here that I don't want to miss as a church and as a pastor that I think jump out of the text, particularly on Philip and maybe just a little bit on Andrew. So we're going to take two weeks to do the feeding of the 5,000. But let's look at the first principle, is the principle of the inadequacy of, of our own resources. Let's pick up the text in 6.1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So he travels, here's the setting, to the eastern shore of what is known as the Sea of Galilee. We were on that last year. We're going to go back again. He's going to travel, if you will, here, as it says, to the other side, 
to the eastern shore of this Sea of Galilee. Now, you'll also note, he says there, does John, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same thing. Now, just for a second, we're going to build a little bit of a platform here this morning, and then we'll apply the text. But look again at the text in 6.1. After this, just stop there. There is a gap of time here. So even though we're walking out of John chapter 5, he's going to say after this. In other words, there's a, there's a gap of time here that exists between chapters 5 and 6. You say, well, what's the gap of time? Well, look back in your Bible. Maybe you can see it right there at chapter 5.1. It says, after this, now watch this, there was a feast of the Jews. And you remember when we got there, it, it wasn't identified. It says there was a feast of the Jews, and it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If the feast, which is not identified by John in 5.1, is the tabernacle feast, which runs from October to April, then at least six months has passed when we open up in John chapter 6.1. If in 5.1, when John says after this there was a feast of the Jews, and the feast is what we know as the Passover, then an entire year has passed since the events of John chapter 5. But here's the point. After these things and others, he gets into the boat to go to the other side. He goes to the eastern shore. Look what happened in chapter 6 and verse 2. It says there, and a large crowd was following him. It says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, this is John's way. There's crowds following Jesus Christ. They weren't really following him primarily because of who he was. They were following him primarily because of what he was doing. They followed Jesus to see the signs, not necessarily because they wanted to obey Christ. These crowds were, for the most part, confused. For the most part, they were ignorant of his identity. They were fickle, if you will, and certainly as we walk forward in John 6 and the weeks to come, you will see that come out. But as he makes his way, verse 2 says there's a crowd following him. Pick up the text again at 6.3. As he gets to this other side, it says Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. If he's on, beloved, that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, he went up into the mountain. We were probably on that mountain last year. Above that mountain is an area called the Golan Heights. And so he just gets away. He puts the disciples into a boat. It doesn't say that here. It says it in the other Gospels. They get away. He gets there. He takes them up into the mountain, and he goes there for the purpose of prayer. Now, there's a little editorial note. Look at 6.4. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so this area was teeming with people. The Passover, as you know, is the exodus, right, for Israel out of Egypt 
where the lamb would be slaughtered. And of course, John has already identified Jesus profoundly as the lamb of God. And later, this will become huge and even prominent as he goes into the discourse on the bread of life that follows here in chapter 6. But understand the setting here. It is a time of nationalistic zeal. It's Passover, the thought of the Messiah, his return. It creates, if you will, a fervor pitch. And as he goes up to that mountain to, with the disciples in that elevated position, look at verse 5. It says that lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him. So there's the picture. He goes to the other side and this crowd is ever just moving towards him. In fact, when you put the parallel accounts together with Mark's gospel, and I think this will come up on the screen, in Mark's gospel, you can see what it says. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. The ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee had produced such crowds that these disciples had no time to eat. So he took them to the shore, up on the mountain, to rest and even to eat. I mean, as you begin to follow this ministry, it was a relentless pursuit without rest. It was, if you will, physically exhausting. To drop a little note in here, when he took them up on the mountain to rest, it was also emotional. John the Baptist had been beheaded, emotionally tiring mentally taxing. Matthew 11 says they were exhausted. In addition to that, they were spiritually in battle. They were fighting the demonic forces. And so he takes them away to a desolate place to rest a while. But it says this in the next verse. Do you have that in Mark 6.32? They went away in a boat. See, John doesn't mention a boat, but it, it looks like it was a boat, and we understand that. Here it is a boat, and he took them to this desolate place by themselves. But John 6.33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So what do you mean they ran there on foot? I don't think that's hard. You got a boat out on the north, north end of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, and they're going from one place to the eastern shore. As that boat is going, I think there's just a trail of people along kind of that northeast corner that are just following Christ. So he's in the midst of a very, very busy time, wanting the disciples to get away, wanting them to be able to eat, if you will. And the people are running ahead, and they're running ahead because of the signs. They're not running ahead because this is God in the flesh. They want another sign. So look at the text again in 6.5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming to him. Now I don't have time here, but when you go over to Mark chapter 2, the crowds are unbelievable. Everywhere he went were the crowds. I mean, you can imagine if all the people who were diseased in Mark 1 and 2 just wanted to touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched the fringe of his cloak were healed. It says in Mark's gospel that they brought all who were ill and diseased, and he healed the whole town. Then he says he gathered in a room in Mark chapter 2 just to teach the word of God where they let the paralytic down, and there was no room even near the door. Everywhere he went, there were crowds. 
And there's going to be a crowd here at this feeding. You understand the crowd is bigger than the town of Kingsburg that we stand and sit in. It's twice as big. If Kingsburg's 11 or 12, we maybe believe there was 20 to 25,000 people. They're just all over. Christ is moving. The, the fervor is high. It's Passover season, okay? In fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that about right now at this time, it's getting late. Luke tells us in his gospel that as these crowds came, he had taught them all day. He taught them all day on the kingdom of God. All day, presumably, in this sun. And so Jesus says to Philip, look back at verse 5. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He, he asked Philip. And you'll note what Philip said. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little I think Philip responds to Jesus and says, are you kidding me? Think about this. There's 20,000 probably at least. I think it's more likely 25. Jesus turns to Philip. And, and I couldn't get any further than that. And, I, and I'm thinking, why Philip? And I think there's a lesson here because he's teaching the disciples and he's teaching us. But he directed it to Philip. Now what's intriguing here, if you can just stop and pause right here, there's an Old Testament analogy here. Do you remember, beloved, when Moses was in the wilderness with Israel and they had no resources to eat and the people begin to complain that they had no meat to eat. And here's what Moses said. Where can I go to get meat to give all this people? Numbers eleven thirteen. He felt overwhelmed for the task. And I think Philip feels overwhelmed by the task. He, Moses asked there in Numbers 11, where do I go? How do I give meat to these people? They're already eating the manna. And then here, Moses' response there in Numbers 11 was, the people whom I am among are 600,000 on foot, and you will have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Moses can't believe it. Or shall the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And then this, and the Lord said, is the Lord's hand shortened or in the other translation is the lord's power limited now you shall see whether my word will come true to you or not and you know the account there he brought those birds of the air if you will and he dropped them in their camp to give them the food they needed divinely supplied so what becomes an analogy of moses now we're back with the disciples and he singles out you're reading it, Philip. And I just had to stop there. Because when you go to the other Gospels, remember this account is in every one of them, the synoptics we call it. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when you go to the other account, he looks to the disciples and says, where do we get all the bread? But not in this one. He picks out Philip. And he picks out, in verse 8, 
Andrew. Remember, Andrew was the guy who brought the boy. And I'm asking why. And I don't want to go too far in this, but I think there's, there's something here for us. Some commentators would say, oh, he picked Philip because he's from Bethsaida. And we've been there last year. Bethsaida is just around the top of the Sea of Galilee, not far from where Jesus is here by the Sea of Tiberias or that eastern shore. So he just picked Philip because he's a homeboy. He knows the area. He knows where the shawarma shops are, if you will. And that's what they say. But I don't think that's why he picked Philip. So, well, why do you think that, Pastor? Because of the text. Look at verse 6. He said this, what does it say? To what? Test him. For he himself, Jesus, knew what he would do. So you've got a window here into this guy named Philip. He's testing Philip. He may be testing you this morning. Because you might say, oh, he's God in the flesh. And maybe you've identified, but I just want to know, do you believe in him? Are you trusting him? Can he meet your need even now? And Philip, at least back in the text, was shocked. 200 denarii of bread, and you can see his mind working. He said, how much is 200 denarii of bread? Where he says that, um, he says uh, there in verse 7, well, 200 denarii of bread. Let me just say this. One denarii is worth one day's wage, okay? I, I could take you into pages that are written. You know, it's 17 cents. I don't want to get into all that. Just understand this. One denarii is one day wage. 200 denarii is eight months of a guy's wages. So what Philip comes back and says to Jesus is, he's basically saying, we can't do it. We don't have it. And you know how much that is? It's three quarters of a guy's salary for the entire year. Now again, he's gonna, I'm going to ask, why did he pick up Philip? Because I think it's likely, and a number of scholars believe this, that Philip was the apostolic administrator. He was the arranger of meals. He was the arranger of uh, logistics. He was the guy that put things together of how they got done. Philip, beloved, had the mind of a mathematician. And I think Jesus turns to him and he's working it all out in his head. Uh, let's see, one denarii, day's wage. We could get 36 barley biscuits. This would take 7,200 biscuits, but that wouldn't be enough. If we broke them in half, that wouldn't work either. Jesus, it just won't happen. MacArthur on 12 Ordinary Men said this about Philip. And really, listen, this is for us. He was a master of the impossible. Philip was a process person. He was a facts and figures guy, a by-the-book, practical-minded, non-forward-thinking type of individual. He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, pessimistic, narrowly focused, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with reasons things can't be done, Rather than finding ways to do them, he was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic. End of quote. Well said. That's Philip. The Lord, interesting, turns to him and says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? 
Another writer said it's a beautiful question for a bean counter, isn't it? That's Philip. And listen, we need people like Philip in the church. But sometimes our own humanness gets in the way of what God wants to do. Listen, beloved, it never entered Philip's mind, we're laughing, that Jesus created the world with a word. Okay? Never entered his mind. It never entered his mind, at least at this point, that Jesus just took water and fermented it and upcased all the process and gave him the best wine. It never entered his mind that in the last chapter in four, when they, or two chapters, when Jesus healed the official's son, he healed the official's son from a distance and changed the chemicals in that boy's body the very same hour when he told the official to go, your son as well. He never thought about the guy laying at the pool for 38 years and he said, rise, take up your bed and go home. He never thought that this is the one back in the last chapter that Moses wrote about. Here's what I'm saying. Philip was so caught up in the numbers that he couldn't see the Lord of glory right in front of him. The raw facts clouded his faith. And some of us are like that. Listen, he's so obsessed with his, his temporal predicament that he was just impervious to the possibilities that lay in Jesus' power. Here's what he might have said. Lord, if you want to feed him, feed him. I'm going to stand back, Lord. I'm going to watch you do it. You made the wine at Cana. You made your children manna in the wilderness. Do it, Lord. Make food. But Philip, he was simply convinced it couldn't be done. He had forgot the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lockyer, in his wonderful account of the apostles, said this of Philip. His mind was precise, methodological, mechanical. It was the mind of a plotting, accurate, conscientious businessman but he had little imagination and was slow to believe what he could not see. I think specifically, beloved, he turned to Philip and he could be bringing you to a place right now. You can tell me he's God, but as it relates to your future, his power is unlimited, is it not? But this isn't the only passage about Philip. Let me just show you. Look over in John 12. I just want to touch on these just for a second. There's a second passage that reveals similar thinking. And it's in John 12. And it's in verse 20. Just watch, watch it with me. Now among those, 1220, who went up to worship at the feast were some, what does it say? Greeks. That's my people. <laughs> I'm, I'm Greek. Jesus is a savior. We've already seen that for the whole world. But at this place... There were some Greeks there, Gentiles, okay? And it says there, they, do you see this in verse 21? These came to what? Philip, interesting, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And he asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, why does it say they came to Philip? Well, because that's what you're reading. <laughs> they came to Philip. Philip has a Greek name. 
And it could be that these are Greeks, and Philip has a Greek name. And so maybe, and he's Jew, but he has a Greek name, not totally uncommon. And maybe they just said, hey, we're going to go to him. It could have been that they went to him because he's the apostolic administrator. He's the holder of the keys. And this group of Greeks wants to see Jesus. He said, well, what happened? Well, look what it says in 21 or 22. Philip went and told what? Andrew and Andrew... And Philip went and told Jesus. Now, beloved, I would just say this, just recognizing this. Philip made him wait. I mean, you just think if, if uh, somebody wanted to be introduced with Jesus, you don't need to come ask me. <laughs> you don't need to come ask an elder. You just take him to Jesus himself, and he's right there. But all I know is Philip went first and told Andrew. The Greeks come and they said, hey guys, I'm open to that, but just wait a minute here. And he went and told Andrew. Now what's interesting with Philip is that he didn't do this in John chapter 1. Philip went and told his friend Nathaniel. So we, it's hard to get exactly what's going on here. But they come to him, and he makes them wait. Now, you ask the question, was something bugging Philip? I think it was. When you go to the other account, I think this comes up on the screen there in Matthew. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of who? Israel. And then you go to Matthew 15, 24. Jesus himself said, at least in terms of priority, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, to the Jew, what? In priority, first. But here's what I think, beloved. He's going by the book again. He's just bound up in systems and protocol. In fact, one commentator said his protocol as an administrator messed him up again. He was apprehensive to pull the trigger. He couldn't pull the trigger. In other words, Philip being the administrative type probably carried around in his head a full manual, this one writer said, of protocols and procedures that he might have had an actual written policy manual which he fastidiously devised and insisted on following to the letter. And so when Jesus comes and says, where are we going to get the food? doesn't fit in his box. So in John 6, beloved, he loses sight of the supernatural power of Christ because of the, the impossibility of the mathematical calculations. In John chapter 12, he loses sight of the supernatural message of Christ because he has a rigid set of procedures. That's Philip. But there's another one. You just look one more. John 14. You know this well. I'm, I'm in the I'm at the Last Supper. It's the night before John 14. Jesus is in the upper room of the Passover. It's the eve of his own crucifixion. 
chapter 13 and John, Judas had just betrayed Jesus Christ. John 14, 1 and 2, the disciples' heart was troubled. In other words, he promised to return and receive them. Did he not say that in verse 3, to receive them, that where he was going, I'm going to take you with me. And he said, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, he said, we do not know where you are going and how we are and how can we know the way. And then, of course, Jesus gave that wonderful statement in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus said, if you had known me, look at this, verse 7. You would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have what? Seen him. That's what we've just got done looking at in chapter 5. In the clearest possible language there is, here John and Jesus is saying that he is God. That God the Father and God the Son are equal in essence, equal in action, equal in power, and equal in honor. To know Christ, Jesus said, is to know the Father. To see Christ is to see God the Father. And they have both seen Him and they known Him, so in fact, they already know the Father. And it sounds great, but have you ever noticed the next verse? <laughs> verse 8. Who said? So who speaks? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Beloved, I believe it must have broken our Lord's heart. Three years, and I just say this graciously, just to you and to me. He's still unclear. Still. If you just do this, it's enough. If you just show us this, it's enough. And he just got done saying, if you'd known me, verse 7, you've known my father also. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. And so look what Jesus said to him in verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me so gentle has seen the father. How can you say, show us? The Father. Beloved, what's John's message to us this morning in this account? Well, let me just clearly say the miracle pointed to him. It pointed to his majesty. It pointed to his glory. It pointed to his ability and his willingness, if you will, to supply every need. Go back to John 6. Just enough for me to say this. That in that very text, I think you know how it turned out. They brought him the five barley loaves in verse 9. Jesus said in verse 10, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and we had given thanks. He distributed to them those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So when they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, he fed them all. He fed them all, and we'll touch on that next week. But I'm asking you right now, I don't know where all of you are in your hearts, but in the midst of your crisis, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your inadequate resources, 
in the midst of your inadequate gifting that you might feel you have, his identity and your faith is going to be proven and tested. Let me just encourage you with this, that he wants you to come to the end of yourself. That's it. He wants you to admit that you can't do it and that you don't have the resources and that you don't have the giftedness to take care of these people and that he can provide. Listen, here's what's fascinating to me. The religious leaders, they missed him altogether in chapter 5 and we looked at that. Nicodemus in chapter 3 Missed him altogether. In chapter 1, he comes into his own and his own received him. What? Not they missed him. But the disciples, though privileged, are unclear as to who they are serving. You say, well, Scott, how do you know that? Well, right here. And then the next passage proves it. Just glance in your eyes at chapter 6, a couple weeks away. In verse 16, when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. He got into the boat, started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were what? They don't know who he is. You say, well, what's the point? Oh, I think it's real clear. I don't think the crowds understand who he is. I don't think the disciples know who he is. I think they've embraced them for what they know, but they don't know who's standing right in their midst, and neither do we sometimes. The disciples' astonishment there in the walking of the water reveals a lack of understanding regarding his identity. Here's what the great scholar Bruce said. They knew him, and they didn't know him. They were like children who can repeat the catechism without understanding its sense or who possess a treasure without being capable of estimating its value. They were like men looking at an object through a telescope without adjusting the focus. They had no clear, full, consistent spiritual conception of the mind, heart, and character of the man Christ Jesus in whom dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, nor would they, Bruce said, until the promised comforter came and the Holy Spirit came to them. And so here's the first principle, is the inadequacy of our own resources. Here's what I'm asking my heart and I'm asking you. Do you trust him right now? Are you trusting him for your children? Are you trusting him for your health? Are you trusting him for your ministry? Or do you trust yourself? And as long as you and I look at ourself, we'll never trust him. And I guarantee you, he's probably got some of you in a fix somewhere where you don't have the resources, you don't have the giftedness, and he's just, he, he's, he's testing you. And the testing isn't to submarine your faith. The testing is to prove your faith. And listen, I, I don't, I'll, maybe I'll get to it next week. You know what the disciples said? Because here's what happens when you don't have your eyes on the Lord. They said, send him away. <laughs> Listen, when God is small and people are big, you have no love in your heart for people. They just assume, send him away. Jesus says, you feed him. And now all of a sudden, they're confronted with what they don't have. And beloved, we often 
like Philip, let, let me just say it this way. Size up the need. Evaluate our lack of resources. Tell people what we don't have in our giftedness. And then we resign ourselves to passivity and hopelessness. We just say, I can't do it. But it's even worse. You're saying, Christ can't what? Do it. You know, I don't know what enters. I see him out there. David's mind and Aaron to adopt another child with full children. But that's a step of faith because for some people, I, I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if we have the resources. I don't know if we have the... I don't, and fear can take you up. And hopelessness sets in and passiveness sets in. And you've got the Lord of glory in your midst who has unlimited power. Forgive the expression. Tell me if I shouldn't have said this today. But you know, I had boys in my home, and my son's off at medical school in St. Louis, and my other son's a, uh, he's a businessman in, uh, in Nashville. And so I grew up in a house of chicks watching Ann Shirley, you know. And she used to go into this thing called the pit of despair. Do you guys know that part? Where when she got in the pit of despair, the violin came out. And she just got so discouraged that she could do nothing. I think Philip can, can happen to him. Hughes, the commentator, said, and I get the expression, he said, Philip had the slide rule for a brain. Possibly that's the case this morning. You've come to Christ, but you don't believe that Christ can accomplish it. And the it is your fears or your doubts or your finances or your children, or your relationships, or your future, or your job, and you have forgotten Christ and his power to meet the need of others. And maybe, beloved, just this morning, you need to lay aside what can't be done and lay a hold of what God can do by faith. So as it says in Numbers 11, is the Lord's power limited? Is the Lord's hand, actually we read, shortened like he can't Pull it off. Listen, maybe there's a ministry that the Lord's encouraging you and putting you on your mind, and you don't know how it can be done. You don't know if you have the resources for it financially or the giftedness, but maybe you need to step forward in faith. Maybe there's a relationship somewhere in this place that's unmended, and you need to mend it. You need to pray, and you need to act. Maybe there's a heart for ministry at GCV that needs to be started, and we don't have it, then I knight you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go do it. But listen, whatever you do, don't sit back. Don't sit back and say what can't be done. That's what Philip did. And listen, the church needs people like Philip, and maybe he was the apostolic administrator, but at times he needed to make sure he was seeing the Lord of glory right and follow it in front of him. Maybe some of you families have a desire to adopt and you just need to follow through on it. Maybe some of you are, have a financial difficulty and you need to trust them and pray and, and be active in that. Maybe some of you have giftedness and resources and you need to use them for his glory. Maybe some of you, for those of you who have faith, you, you know, you, not, you might need to step out there. Is that teen challenge on Friday in Bakersfield, listening to the wonderful 
wonderful testimonies of men and women being converted and listening to the needs that it takes care of financially to, to make that happen. And I'll tell you, if you just looked at the sheer numbers, it can be, it can be daunting because Teen Challenge is a ministry that's free. That's a lot different, beloved, than the designer clinics that are going to charge people $30,000 a month to get people off drugs. Did you know that's what they cost? 30000 a month. And their success rate, secularly, is 3%. It is a robbery. And Teen Challenge is seeing 80% or better come. And, but they have needs because it's a faith-based. And I just think somebody's going to have to take something and have a step of faith to open another place up and see God work. But listen, is the Lord's power limited? Just do me a favor. Let's not talk about what God can't do. And I don't mean that in a weird way. Let's talk about what he can do. And when Moses cried out to the Lord, where will we give meat to give all this people? The Lord responded, is the Lord's power limited? And let me just say this to encourage you. He is sufficient in the midst of your deficiency. He is sufficient in the midst of your deficiency. Here's my prayer. Trust in the Lord and make the Lord your trust. Every day, every hour, every minute that you seek, trust and rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the cure, right? Simple. But it's hard to do. You must be in fellowship with Christ all day long, praying to Him, asking for things, praising Him for things, looking for strength, looking for wisdom, looking for grace, it doesn't matter if you're in junior high this morning. doesn't matter if you're in high school. doesn't matter if you're a college-age student or a single or a housewife or an empty nester or a grandparent. You've got to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may be that he's testing you as he tested Philip so that we would see his identity clearly and walk by faith and not by sight. I don't know why it came to me early this morning. Trust in the Lord. You know that song? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? To trust and obey. May that be our refrain.